Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 176, Wilderness Torah. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And our guest today is Zelig Golden. He is the co-founder and executive director of Wilderness Torah, the Center for Earth-Based Judaism. Wilderness Torah awakens and celebrates the earth-based traditions of Judaism to nourish the connections between self, community, earth, and spirit. Wilderness Torah has festival programs celebrating ancient Jewish pilgrimage festivals in their original earth-based context, as well as youth programs, leadership training programs, and a variety of other programs that we'll discuss in the interview. Before founding Wilderness Torah, Zella Golden was an environmental lawyer. He also holds a master's degree in Jewish studies from the Graduate Theological Union. And while he wasn't a rabbi when he founded Wilderness Torah, he is a rabbi now, having recently received rabbinic ordination from Aleph, the Alliance for Jewish Renewal. And he had been previously ordained as a Magid by Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, one of the founders of Jewish Renewal. We're excited to jump into this conversation about Judaism and the wilderness. So, Zella Golden, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. It is great to be here. So, I thought we could get started just by understanding a little bit in depth about what Wilderness Torah is about and what you concretely do. Yeah, so Wilderness Torah's mission is to awaken the earth-based traditions, to help people connect with themselves, each other, the earth, and uh, a living Alive Judaism. And um, I think that the, the, the mission is deeper than that, though. It's not just about the earth. It's really about using nature as a context to explore being human, to explore being in community, and to explore being connected to Judaism in an open, authentic way. So, in a sense, nature is a context to really bring in you know, all these different aspects alive. And what do we actually do? We provide multi generational community experiences. We have a grand Passover in the desert, gathering out in the desert near Death Valley for a five-day multi-generational festival that isn't just about telling the story, but it's about really entering into a field where we cultivate and embrace liberation. Uh, Sukkot on the farm, where we gather on the farm to enjoy the harvest, but also to the deeper work of connecting with and, and celebrating water and invoking the rain to the ancient rain dance. And Shavuot, we gather, you know, um, not just to read the Torah, but the, the deeper work of revelation. How do we um, open ourselves to and cultivate ourselves to be open to what wants to be re- revealed from without and perhaps from without? And we also have a whole uh, youth program adventure for kids K through end of high school now. So Bechut is our Sunday school outdoors, an entirely nature-based Sunday school. The nature is our 11 to 13-year-old nature-based rite of passage program really asking the deeper questions of those becoming adolescent. What is your fire? How do you tend to your fire as your biological fire comes online? And using the Jewish tradition to help these young people come of age in a, in a challenging world. And then we are just now launching uh, the, the Shomrim Neshama quest, Shomrim guardians, cultivating the teen guardians of the community fire and the new Neshama quest. The soul quest is a week long backpacking trip in the wilderness where 
high school youth get to do the deeper work of getting ready to enter into the young adult sphere. And then in addition to our community programs and our youth programs, uh, we're also doing a lot of work in the thought leadership realms and training both leaders in the Bay Area where we're based, but also in the broader Jewish world to take this earth-based Jewish wisdom and tradition to places all across the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to create this organization, when that was, and who you were at that time, and why you created it? Yeah, I mean, Wilderness Torah really began to come to life around 2007. At that time, I was uh, working as an environmental attorney with the Center for Food Safety, doing federal litigation in opposition to the USDA and Monsanto around genetically modified foods and their crops and the failure to comply with environmental law. I was fighting the good fight, you might say. Julie Wolk was a community organizer for the Rainforest Action Network. John Rosenfield was working for a local conservation group working on uh, you know, water resources issues. And Adam Dell was a, a local teacher in a farm-to-table school program. And the four of us came together and said, you know, we really want to do something unique. And uh, that Sukkot in the farm emerged. That was in 2007. And that also came, you know, in a personal level, that came out of my my spiritual journey uh, in July of 2007, just a couple months before, I went on a vision quest. I was really asking the, the deeper question, like, why am I on earth? What's my purpose? And um, on that vision quest, on a mountain on the California-Nevada border, I, I just there's this powerful moment at the very end where I, I got this, you know, I might call it a vision, or it feels like a seed of a vision that said, you know, get your people back to nature. And I came back uh, with that, and, and that's when the conversation between the four of us sort of really heated up and we said, let's, let's do this. And we, we did Sukkot on the farm and then Passover in the desert came next in 2008. And uh, a year later, Upstart Bay Area um, emerged as a Bay Area nonprofit incubator. And Julie and I had decided to step forward and take this Wilderness Torah idea to the next level. And Wilderness Torah was off and running. Could you try and distill for us what it is about nature that's so thoroughly called to you personally and maybe why it seems to be doing so for others as well? Absolutely. I mean, at a very fundamental level, we live in a time of disconnection. You might say people across the world live in a crisis of disconnection right now. And that crisis of disconnection manifests in the, the psychological epidemics that we're seeing, you know, certainly in the United States and beyond. Now, there are sociological studies and psychological studies that have directly linked this to a lack of nature connection. Now, this isn't why I went for Wilderness Torah, but in my in the early days of developing Wilderness Torah, I began to see this landscape and that I was a part of this landscape. And for me personally, as an environmental lawyer, I was fighting for the thing I loved, but I was also depressed. I was sort of lost. I I had a bit of a spiritual crisis and that's what led me to want to go to the mountain for a vision quest because I I didn't know who I was, even though I was very successful as as a lawyer. You might think, you might say I was, uh, deep down, I wasn't totally happy. And we see this, I think, in, 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 uh, as, a, as a trend across Western, modern America, especially, but Western culture. People are just asking themselves, like, who am I? What is this all about? Well, our, our lack of relationship to the place that we come from, I think, is a, the place to begin looking. It's foundational. And our Torah, you know, shows us in the very beginning of the, the Torah, it says that earthling, Adam, comes from the earth, Adama. If you are not connected to the source of your being this, then, you know, what are you? Who are you? And I think this is a a really fundamental question we all have to ask. When I started asking that question, I looked into the Torah and I didn't have to scratch very hard, very deep, because there it was, all of our ancestors, you know, 
began this Jewish story in the wilderness. And then when we, when we encountered the land, that relationship to nature only deepened. That's why we have, you know, a very profoundly well-developed sense of agricultural laws and mores around how we relate to and treat the land, including one out of every seven years resting the land out of a deep respect for the need for the land to rest. That's a deep relationship. One question that comes to my mind, though, is that for the last 2,000 years, it hasn't necessarily been so. And I guess I'm wondering how you understand what you're doing with regard to the map of Jewish history. Do you, do you regard yourself as reaching back to kind of a pre-Judaism, a pre-Rabbinic Judaism, and, and doing what with it to, to kind of um, bring it forward and replace, in a sense, Rabbinic Judaism or live in complementarity with it? Or how do you look at that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, as, a, as one trained in rabbinics and one who, who loves the rabbinic tradition, I love the, I love the Talmud, I love the, the Mishnah before it, and I love the Torah that is the foundation upon which all that stands. I love the commentary, I love the Hasidic tradition, and I love the, te- the textual tradition. It is juicy and rich, and I, I love to explore it so that it, it shows me, you know, the truth inside of me and also helps me to dance with the masters, you know. For the generations. So certainly I'm not trying to skip over the 2000 years of rabbinic history. With that said, I think it's something we need to look at, that the rabbinic tradition is based in cultural trauma. That when our temple was destroyed, we were disconnected from the taproot of you know, our cultural system, a very specific place and traditions that developed around that place. Our festivals were all around bringing you know, the produce from the land to the fire and that place. The rhythms of, of life were based on you know, that environment. And when the temple fell and the fire was put out, you know, the rabbis um, were faced with you know, one of the most difficult things that tradition could be faced with. How do we survive in a time when we've just, our homeland's been destroyed? As a side note, the Dalai Lama, you know, is facing the same question himself, gathers some rabbis together. We, we know this from the book, Jew and the, the Lotus, that the Dalai Lama, you know, asked this very difficult question himself. So it's not a unique Jewish question. You know, what do you do in the face of this cultural trauma being removed from your homeland? You know, Jewish summer camp is not just the only answer, although it's been a profound response to keeping the youth engaged. But I think the rabbis did something absolutely revolutionary and absolutely profound and beautiful and something that I deeply honor and respect, which is they, they took those traditions that were rooted in the land and, and, and the way I metaphorize it, my, my mythic understanding of the moment of the creation of the Mishnah and later the Talmud was like the rabbis understood that they had to take the seed bank from the land that was the, the nourishing roots of our tradition and draw it out of the land and in a sense desiccate it and paint it, you know, onto the pages of the, the Mishnah and the Talmud. The rabbinic tradition is a post-traumatic response to exile absolutely profound in its complexity and its minutia, wrestling with details that now sometimes seem, you know, interesting and also absurd at times. And if you look at, you know, what's happening now today, the generations that are coming up, people want it real and they want it connected. This does not mean we have to return back to the land of Israel necessarily. Although I believe in love Israel, I think it means that wherever Jews are today, they need to be given the opportunity to unpack the suitcase of their tradition and replant it. And so this is not to go back to pre-rabbinic. It's to take ancient understanding of our earth-based roots, integrate it with the last 2,000 years of rabbinic wisdom and say, what's next?
And wilderness tour is one of many explorations of what is next. So could you give us a description of one of your your larger um, festivals and how what you just talked about manifests through that event? Yeah, I can start with Passover in the Desert. It's becoming sort of our flagship annual festival. We gather in the desert uh, near Death Valley. It's called the Panamint Valley. It's four hours from Los Angeles, eight hours from the Bay Area, and it's in Mamash Desert. You go there and you are in the wilderness. There is no cell phone reception. It looks like you're in the Arava of southern Israel. And we literally build an encampment in the wilderness, and we gather you know, close to 300 people this past year for five days of all ages, children in a cool kids program, teens in a beautiful teen program being sent out and received back from the wilderness for an epic journey, adults doing, you know, uh, ecstatic Kabbalah Shabbat, doing learning together, but also exploring, uh, you know, the four worlds of existence, you know, our physical reality, our emotional reality, our spiritual reality, and, and also the intellectual roots of our tradition. So we're really working on the whole village. And in this village, we're also asking the question, how do we gather and do the deep work of liberation together? And part of that is by having a beautiful Kabbalah Shabbat. Part of that is simply being in the desert and with intentionality, sending everyone out to the desert for a few hours of heat bodhidut, of deep solo time. Another piece that we're doing in the, in the particular earth-based tradition that we awaken at Passover in the desert is that we put down a fire, a sacred fire, and we tend that fire for seven days. It's in the, the respect of, of that line in Leviticus. I think it's line six. It says, Eish tamid tukad al hamizbeach. Lo shall put an eternal fire on the altar. It shall never go out. And yes, the Hasidic masters say that eternal fire lives in your own heart. Each one of us has a mizbeach, an altar in our heart of fire that we carry. You know, but almost like the eternal light that you see in most synagogues, an LED sitting above the, the ark, it's not actually quite real. And I would say that most people that come to Wilderness Torah, including myself, are, are tired of being taught to pretend. We want the rituals to be real. And when we put down a fire and use it for sacred purposes and pray, something opens, something deeply magical. And when people leave passing in the desert, they ask the question, how do I go back? After being in a space where liberation feels real, you know, how do I go back now to daily life that is so fragmented? Well, we hope that we're training people about the need for connection and also the ways in which Jewish tradition open up these spaces during these special holiday times that is so profound if we ask ourselves how to do it now in a way that works. I heard a story, well, it's not a story, really. Somebody, somebody told me about their experience leaving an intensive Jewish retreat. Um, I don't actually, I don't remember where this person's retreat was, but it was a Jewish retreat somewhere beautiful and somewhere in nature. And they asked somebody who had been on that retreat before them, you know, how long does this sort of stick with you afterwards? Like how, how can you hold on to it and, and how long does it stay with you? And the person they were talking to said, till the first gas station. Um, th- not, not long. Was, was the answer because there's, I mean, unfortunately, you do have this incredible, maybe the word is transcendent, maybe the word is connected, maybe the word is beautiful, I don't know, whatever it might be. You, you, I've certainly had those experiences where I'm 
in the woods or somewhere and then it just all comes sort of crashing down and you want to hold on to it you want it to sort of embed itself in you for the rest of the year but it's very challenging and so i I wanted to name that for a couple reasons one i'm curious if you have strategies about that um how people can make this not just oh i go on a retreat to the desert for passover that's the one moment i feel connected and the rest of the time I feel like I wish I was at that retreat. Like, I'm curious if you have strategies, but also I want to push a little bit because I think one thing I certainly forget, and I think what a lot of us forget is like, nature isn't this vacuous term for like, up trees in retreat centers in the woods somewhere. Like I live in Providence, Rhode Island, like I live in nature, like I live in a place that is very urban, but it's still a kind of nature. And there's still, I think, ways to be in touch with the land that we live on. Um, and by the way, I live on I live on land that is historically Narragansett and Wampanoag land. We we could go into some of the indigenous questions too. But like I, I I think that we we sort of segment nature in our heads as you know that special place we can go to every once in a while. Like we do that at our own peril. So I'm curious basically, how can we, what are those strategies that you can take these experiences and not just have them be awesome one-time moments, but actually sort of change you and and imbue into your life? And also like, how should we think about our lives, whether it's for you like in the Bay Area or Dan in Chicago or me in Providence or listeners wherever, how can we think of that also as like a kind of nature? I do believe that humans have to, have to understand that nature is not a place you go to. And actually in Providence, I took my, fir- my freshman year environmental studies class. Um, and uh, Professor Ward there asked this question on the first day of class. He said, you know, are we humans part of nature or outside of nature? We have to understand that we aren't just a part of nature. We are nature, period. Again. The first chapter in Genesis, Adam, Adama, earthling is earth. Earth is earthling. We are the same thing. We are part of one living, breathing system. Reb Zalman, Zalman Shakta Shavami, Zichon Livracha, my teacher, and I think one of the great visionaries of the modern period, his core Torah, you know, one of his core Torahs was we must understand that if we don't change our collective understanding that we are part of Gaia and develop a Gaian consciousness, then humans are lost on this earth. The earth will be fine, but humans will be lost on this earth. And so, no, Passover in the Desert is not a one-off retreat. It's a training program. You come to Passover in the Desert to have a deep experience that you can take home. And, and it is hard to go home, Lex, absolutely. And if you go one time and that's the only thing you ever do, that's Jewish in nature, you will forget the first gas station. But luckily, the Jewish holidays come around every year. It's not a circle, it's a spiral, and we grow and we develop and we deepen. And after Passover, we have 49 days to remember and to, and to develop upon that, counting the Omer and permuting the, the spiritual attributes. And that shouldn't just be a conceptual experience, but it should be how am I integrating liberation from Passover so that I can actually receive something deeper can be revealed. And so the tradition itself provides these points along the Hebrew calendar for integration and continuation of the deepening. So we sit by an all-night fire at Shavuot, and then for Sukkot, we go out and we dance for the rain, you know? And in and, and we go and we pray in the trees, and, and it continues around like that. For every mountaintop experience, you know, we have to do the chop wood carry water experience a hundred times. So come home, 
And if you're in Chicago, go sit in your backyard and listen to the birds because absolutely nature is right there. But then go to Lincoln Woods, Lex, you know, and spend half of the day alone in a wild place, you know, and then return back to your, your less wild home and, 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 and do the daily routine, but then go back out to the wild, you know, once in a while. So we have to cultivate that. So Zella, can you help us understand in a deep way, sort of what it is that as you describe this, what is the job of Judaism? I mean, what, what is the reason you said it wasn't in order to preserve Judaism just so that we preserve it, that that's over. So I guess I'm, I'm looking to understand as you see it, how connecting with the stuff of Judaism makes people's lives better or makes the earth better? Like what is, what is, why is this something that we ought to be doing and how does it all need to be restructured so that it can do that work? I was recently asked by um, one of the elders in the wilderness Torah community, you know, why, why do you love Judaism and what is Judaism good at? And I have multiple answers, but I started with this. I said, Judaism is masterful at holding sacred time for us so we can live our lives, go to work, have a vacation, go to work, have a weekend, and life can just sort of slide away. But Judaism holds us in rhythms and cycles. The weekly with Shabbat gives us a time to pause, reflect, rest, connect to our community, love our partners, you know, celebrate with family, put the, the altar of the of Shabbat table and sit and have a profoundly beautiful meal on Friday night. The holidays open up these portals of connection, what I call medicine. You know, Passover opens up the portal of reawakening and liberation, freedom. What is that like? You know, every year, what's the, what's the next level of freedom we're looking for? Or what's the next level of freedom we want to activate for others in the world through our activism and our tikkun alam, our building a better world? Hanukkah, you know, what's the darkness that we're encountering and what's the light we want to bring? The Jewish time is amazing. And I believe that our Jewish time is also deeply connected to nature's cycles. Now, it's easier for me in California, like, um, you know, our sisters and brothers in Israel. Maybe not as easy in New York or even Chicago, or, but, but still, it provides us a roadmap that's connected to the seasons the foods that are coming onto our table and our spiritual lives. And there's something very profound about that. Secondarily, I think, oh, I, I know Judaism provides for us a system of values and opportunities to understand what it means to be a good human. And it is not an obvious thing how to walk as a good human on planet earth today. But the highest echelons of leadership are failing us. Even leadership in our Jewish communities are failing us, you know, in leadership uh, at all scales, but it's there for us to pick up, you know, and when we look at the very critical issues, social issues of our time or the ecological issues of our time, Judaism provides many, many guideposts, specifically around climate change, which of course is one of the most challenging issues we face. There is instruction right at the very, very center of our tradition. The Shema says, all is one. Listen, all is one. And then it says, now go love with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your might. Then the second paragraph says, if you do this, there will be rain. And if you fail to do this, climate change is going to happen. Well, it's right there. You know, this is not just the pedantic God that we hate from Sunday school. If you go to a deeper understanding, it's actually, you know, a roadmap for how to be a human being on planet earth. 
it provides us ancestry. It provides us roots. Um, you know, I'm thinking about how how uh, the, in in the time of the ancient Israelites, when they were connected to the earth all the time, right? Because they were farmers, but they would have these pilgrimage festivals to the temple to connect with some other, even more ancient, right, uh, dimension of of uh, of what they were looking to connect with. That that at least mythically we we have often imagined, right? Something like the Garden of Eden, where the human beings were with God all the time. Okay, so now we're not with God all the time. So three times a year, we're going to go for this heightened experience. And in a way, what I'm hearing you describe is a version of that, saying. And I and I'd love to if to get into it a little more deeper with with you because I think there's something really here about you know we've also explored it in terms of Burning Man a little bit you know this idea that um, that that pilgrimage festivals it's not only about the wilderness and the earth it's also about the particular power of a pilgrimage festival something that where you have a heightened experience for a short period of time and that that somehow uh, reconnects you to something that realistically we are disconnected from I mean right I don't think that you're advocating for that everybody should go off the grid and we should get rid of modern technology. And, you know, so so I'd love to sort of play that out because I think there's something really significant here, both about wilderness and also about how whatever we want to call Judaism a religion or whatever it might become, you know, how something like that can work and ought to work in a way that it does um, not only recharge people, but I think, like you were saying earlier, also help people ground themselves and root themselves in a deep set of values and concerns that, ultimately is only, uh, well, I shouldn't say only, but is, is ultimately um, mostly important if and, and when they're able to bring that back into the world that they inhabit the rest of the time. Well, first of all, I, I want to agree with you 100% that I'm not advocating that everyone leave New York City um, and you know, go out to a farm. It's actually the case that from many perspectives, New York City is a much more sustainable way of living for a large number of people than everyone having, you know, a country home, sharing resources, you know, creating urban density. Like this is one of the ways that we actually use resources. Well, um, you know, a grid of renewable energy with renewable food sources, et cetera, um, would make New York, you know, even stronger in that way. Um, but that said, I think that the natural world, the wilderness, as it were, provides a critical medicine. And if we don't go there periodically, then we're going to miss that core medicine. And that core medicine is actually where we derive our personal and communal understanding of who we are. That when we, then when we return with that medicine, we can operate from a place of who we are. I deeply believe that if the majority of people on planet Earth had the opportunity and the privilege to take time out and retreat and ask the question, who am I? And be facilitated to reflect and then receive insight into who I am, and then went back into the world and lived in a world that wanted to uplift who everyone is, the world would be a much more uh, supportive place. The world would be a more uh, collaborative place and a less competitive place. But I think instead the world is a place where people don't know who they are and they're scrambling to just make it. So in the nature, for example... We put youth out alone in nature quite a few times during that two-year journey. And at the culmination of that journey, they go out by themselves with their own fire all night long. That then lives in them the rest of their lives. You have more access to that deeper soul truth when you're away from people, community, parents, 
society. So it says, it says in, the, in the book of Numbers, one of the books in the, the, the Torah, it says that um, there's this journey that the Israelites are taking from, from the Midbar to Matana. And then the rabbis in the Talmud, they work on this question and say, well, what the heck are they talking about? What's, what's Midbar, which is the wilderness? And what is Matana, which means the gift? And so the rabbis reflect. They say, well, when we go to the Midbar, the wilderness, we can receive the gift. And they dig deeper and say, well, you know, what does that actually mean? And the rabbis say, well, look at what happened in the wilderness over and over and over again. When you go to the wilderness, that's where you are able to receive Torah, wisdom, truth, personal truth, and collective truth. In fact, they say, it's not only that that's where you can receive it, you must do that. You must make yourself like the wilderness in order to receive Torah, the rabbis conclude. But in order to make yourself like the wilderness, you have to go to the wilderness. So when I hear you talk about the ways that you educate kids in the wilderness um, outside, I, so I, I have like a feeling of almost jealousy. Um, it's not really jealousy. Like I'm very happy that you're doing it. Um, but I, I think back on my own Jewish educational experiences and I remember moments where we'd be at Sunday school and my Sunday school was at a synagogue where literally the backyard, I mean, it was gorgeous. There were trees. There was a river like right in the backyard of the synagogue that um, on Rosh Hashanah, you'd do tashlich, you'd go and throw the bread right there. Um, and we would bother the teachers. We'd be like, can we go outside? It's a beautiful day. Can we like do the lessons outside? And they'd say like, no, that'll be distracting. And I often was just like, thinking to myself, well, I probably didn't think this at the time, but looking back, um, yes, exactly. It'd be distracting. Like you'd be in the midst of the the wilderness and you'd be like living, I mean, not living, you'd be for two hours in Sunday school in the environment that is all over the Torah. And like, what could be better for soaking into Jewish learning? And so I, I'm curious on that front, like what what it means and what it looks like to do this kind of work with kids specifically through your programs like by nature like what what does it look like to to take jewish education and have it manifest outside what are some of the challenges of that what are some of the powerful amazing things about that and um i guess like what what do you think changes about students when they experience that versus if they experienced a different kind of of Hebrew school, Sunday school learning environment? Wilderness Torah started in 2007 um, with the, a community festival, mostly adults, some kids. After about two years, um, we started to ask the question, why are we doing this? Uh, which we continue to ask, and that answer continues to deepen. But we asked the question, and then one of the answers that came forward was, well, we're doing this um, for the sake of the village. And so we had to ask, well, what's the purpose of a village? And the purpose of a village is to raise children. And so we came to the conclusion quite early that we had to be offering experiences for kids. And so uh, originally called Gan Torah, Torah Garden, we started offering a Sunday school in the woods, later called Bechutz, which means outside. And um, really the objective of Bechutz, which is now a K through five Sunday school in the woods, Every other Sunday, basically, we want it to be accessible um, and we want it to be you know, alive. And it's 
100% in nature, rain or shine. And it uses Judaism more as a container for experience, for emergence with the kids. And so we, uh, we have the stories from the Torah. We have the, you know, the fundamental prayers. We have songs. We have Jewish values. We have holidays. We have the Parsha Hashavua, the Torah portion of the week. All these things contextualize adventure in nature. So at the center of the experience is the child. And the context is Jewish tradition and nature. So we come in with our holiday curriculum, our Torah portion curriculum, the games we're going to use, the challenges we're going to use, the nature crafts we're going to deploy, the songs we're going to bring, the, the, you know, the food we might make over the fire, etc. And then we train our mentors to watch and see what's really alive and then follow that. So if, you know, um, some really wild bird activities happening over the way while we're doing some craft, you know, and one of the kids jumps up and runs after the birds, instead of saying, hey, Billy, come back here. Instead, we might say, hey, guys, let's put our craft down and see what Billy is seeing. You know, we'll follow that. We'll go explore that. And we might learn how to identify a bird song and see what this bird activity is. And then once that bird activity is done, you know, we may like pause and sit down in the forest and lay on our backs and look up at the sky, you know, and then, and then the <laughs> nature becomes the curriculum. It's self-discovery, you know. It's also an empowerment model. Instead of saying, no, you have to do what the adults want you to do, the adults are there to discover what the kids are going to appreciate and bring alive. Behutz is a, a Sunday school in the woods that then leads to nature. And nature is, um, you know, children in nature. It's a Hebrew-English contraction, which was actually named by one of the graduate, graduates from the program. It's a two-year journey. You commit for the two years, and we meet once a month on a Sunday for six hours one Wednesday, an evening around a fire, and there's a spring camping trip with parents and their kids, a winter camping trip with just the kids, and a spring camping trip with just the kids. And then all year, the parents have a parallel parent program that they're a part of. And it's to ask the question, you know, what are the changes that these kids are going through and how do we support them as they transition from childhood into adolescence? And we get real with the fact that they're not becoming adults. They may become adults in relationship to the Torah, and the mitzvot, the, you know, the, the holy responsibilities. And we do this, and this is right, because as you're transitioning from childhood into this time period, you become sexually active, and therefore you need to have a, a framework of self-responsibility and responsibility to the community. But ultimately, it's about them finding out who they are in this next stage. And when the context is Jewish story, again, holidays and Torah portions and mythical stories and songs and prayers and from Judaism, then it's the context of Judaism that takes them on that journey. Well, it's fascinating. Nine years later, after having used these programs, we find a couple things. First, I think it's now safe to say that these kids who've gone through behutz, but especially nature, they have something that is unique. And they're beginning to recognize it. We now have our first crop of kids who are in their first and second year of college who started with us years ago. And yes, they actually love Judaism more than the rest of their friends. And I've asked them why. They're like, I don't really know. When I say to them, well, do you think it's because it was the Jewish context that helped you have all those other things that you love so much about yourself? And a light bulb goes on and says, yeah. It was that context that created those experiences that are so deeply, have so deeply nourished me and enabled me to become who I am that now I actually want to know more about Judaism. Judaism didn't get crammed down their throats at the wrong time. Instead, it became a context for them to become who they want to and are to become. And then they have a really healthy relationship to the tradition. You know, I'm I'm struggling to kind of uh, separate in my mind the the nature part 
and the what I know your teacher and and ours, uh, Rab Zalman Shachter Shalomi, the founder, one of the founders of Jewish Renewal, talks about as the paradigm shift. Right, that we are living in a time of profound shift in the nature of Judaism, and it's interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about this dimension before, but when you were talking earlier about the paradigm shift from biblical Judaism to rabbinic Judaism being partly uh, about the disruption of having been removed from the land, that actually the vast majority of Jews on the earth today uh, are not living in their land of of, uh, least recent familial origin. And whether that was Europe or Arab lands or elsewhere, you know, the most Jews today are in Israel or the United States. And I wonder to what extent that's uh, that plays into the the question of paradigm shift. But I'm wondering if I I I sort of wonder this a lot about the the nature based Jewish organizations because I'm not such a naturey kind of person, and I desperately want to go, for example, to Burning Man to experience the all sorts of things that I hear that happen there. But the idea that I'm going to be living in sand and, you know, heat, it's, it, you know, it's very, very uh, scary to me. Like, I, I want to know that there's an air-conditioned van there available for me uh, if I need to take a break from the nature. And I wonder if that, that the answer is, I should suck it up, everyone should suck it up, there's something unique and important about doing this in nature, or what we're seeing is something else, which is that part of the paradigm shift has to do with some new orientation towards where Judaism fits in your life. Franz Rosenzweig talked about the idea that rather than uh, everything sort of coming out of the Torah and and the text and the tradition that we're sort of bringing, that's going in the opposite direction in this in this time in history, and that we have to bring our own experiences into it. And so I wonder if there's an extent to which what you're describing here is an incredible system for people who love nature, and that those of us who don't love nature so much can still really benefit from it by having these heightened pilgrimage type experiences, which I really still want to do. And, uh, you know, I'd love to come to a wilderness tour thing and Burning Man, um, but probably not uh, all the time. And that for those of us who, um, you know, sort of don't necessarily feel excited about that, that what we really need is is a number of other sorts of ways of connecting with what we're passionate about, what we have deep uh, connections to. And what you're describing here is uh, a model of how that really works in the area that you and many others are really passionate about, which is nature. So I, I think it's it's both, but I'm I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit on the on questions relating to the paradigm shift and what we're really experiencing in terms of where we are in the history of Judaism, not necessarily only connected to nature. Yeah, I mean I think it's it is both, and I'm happy to reflect on that. But I do want to um, answer your question: Do I just need to suck it up or not? <laughs> Please, because I I think it I think it touches on something really profound and. I'm a nature lover and I can't get around that. And so I only, I can only see the world from that perspective, but I do see that people who aren't connected to nature are, I think, missing something um, and, and have, are lacking that certain, that, that medicine I was talking about. But I would say that we shouldn't have them just suck it up, you know, and, and Dan, I, w- I wouldn't just take you and throw you into the most extreme situation. Um, I would want to mentor you and take you on a, or anyone, in, you know, in, in a situation where they, they don't love nature yet. I would take them, on a journey that meets them where they're at in their zone of proximal development. So another important educational, you know, pedagogical thing is like, you know, what's going to push their edge sufficiently without putting them over their edge so they can grow um, and expand what is possible for them. 
eventually getting you to a place where I'd love to be able to put you out, you know, for three nights by yourself fasting in the forest so you can come back with a new vision for your life. But that would, you know, we, we would take the small steps to get there. So I wouldn't make you suck it up, but I want you to go on the journey anyways. I think if everyone did that, we would live in a very different world. With that said, I do think that the, the, the paradigm shift that our dear Rebbe um, is pointing us towards, it's not just about nature, of course, and that using nature as a context for Jewish revival is powerful and not the only relevant one. Um, you know, so the question is, like, what is the paradigm shift about and why do we need it? I think Judaism is still stuck in a post-temple destruction reality that continued with, you know, the many ways of oppression that happened, you know, all across Europe and ultimately in the Holocaust. And that two generations later, we're still suffering the, 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 PS, the PTSD of the Holocaust. And that number one, the, the, the new paradigm has to address that and not turn our backs on that. How do we do that? There are probably more than one ways to do that. Being in nature, sitting on a fire is one of them. It's the way Wilderness Torah addresses it, that it's a very profound way of addressing and helping us stabilize our nervous system from grief. And then, yes, pick and choose from our religion in ways that bring it alive. I think there are certain parts of the tradition we shouldn't push away, you know, so we have to also be careful. But within that, the leaders who are being, bringing new creativity need to be uplifted and supported within a container to say what really works, you know. Changing prayer so it's beautiful, fun, and uplifting needs to happen. Changing the way we do holidays so it's relevant and vibrant needs to happen, you know. And that's the core of the, of the, you know, the paradigm shift or what Joanna Macy calls the great turning, you know, the cultures that resonate with the needs for today. And really the only way we're going to have that happen is if we leaders of today look to the youth of today and ask them what they really want and need and cannot project or assume what that is. So that's part of it. It's not a thing. It's a process. I want to ask you a little bit more about your personal story, your personal journey, because I think that one of the things that we've really advocated for on this show is that regular people should feel the license to bring their own talents and their own passions and their own sense of experimentation and adventure into this work. And it's really inspiring to me to know that when you launched this and this movement that you were no kind of a rabbi, you were a, a lawyer like me. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so I, I'd love to go back a little bit you know, to that time a decade ago and, and ask you why you did this. I mean, why you were among the, the few who really say, hey, I, I have a vision here. I want to do this in a serious way. I want to, whether that means starting an organization or like you did at the beginning, not starting an organization, but just doing some really serious experiments and to reflect a little bit about how we might encourage more of that. But then I also want to ask you why some number of years ago you decided that you did want to become a rabbi and that you did enroll in a formal program. And I'm curious both about the journey to make that decision, and I'm also curious about how that connects to this question of, of paradigm shift, because the office of rabbi came out of the previous paradigm shift, and I'm wondering whether we need a new office and what it looks like when those who really, and, and you're not the only one who, who really start getting into this and creating amazing things like our guest of just a few weeks ago, Greg Marcus, who is also a regular Jew who's created a whole new approach to Musar, has just enrolled in rabbinical school. So I'm really interested in that uh, dynamic as well. You know, I um, was raised in a, a context where um, 
I had a lot of opportunity, but also where there was a lot of fear, fear of not having enough. And I could say the whole Jewish context, you know, exemplifies that, you know, see our previous conversation about, you know, trauma and PTSD culture. And so I was deeply uh, encouraged to put it nicely, I suppose you'd say, to become a professional, to get a lot of security so I could be safe and provide for my family, which are values that I embrace today, hopefully in a healthy way, but it shouldn't be the driving force of one's life. Like I experienced it being mine in the early part of my life, which caused a lot of, a lot of you know, psychological complications, a lot of challenge, a lot of suffering, you might say. Um, it led me to become a lawyer, you know, wearing a white hat to be a good guy to fight the fight. Um, but it was a, a lawyer nonetheless, which, you know, gave me the office of prestige power and hopefully financial security. And even though it was in the public interest and it was fighting for the environment and all that, I got to the end of my rope with it, you know. And so I really started asking the questions like, who am I? Why am I here? And th th that journey, um, which include, you know, psychological counseling, a real deep exploration, uh, you know, I ended up coming up with a few uh, principles that I believe. One is that I believe everyone is born at the right time and that everyone has a purpose. And if we are given a chance to uh, do the work of exploring ourselves and finding our purpose, then we'll find our place in this time to serve with our purpose. And then for me, I discovered that my purpose was not to fight the good fight, although I deeply believe that there are, we need people to fight the good fight. So thank you for all those out there fighting the good fight. But that was not for mine to do. That was based on some other impulse that wasn't a healthy impulse inside myself. And then so I asked the question, well, what am I here to do? And that was a very scary question to ask, having invested so many years and become really a good lawyer. And out on a mountain alone praying, I got the answer, you know, do what you, what you feel is true in terms of taking your people back to nature. And so I followed that impulse. And Wilderness Torah had no financial support. And I took a huge leap of faith. And it was super scary. But I did it. And it was on the drive to pass over the desert, not many days afterwards, that we got the call from the foundation giving us our first grant to actually make Wilderness Torah work financially. So it was a leap of faith. Would I do that now with a wife and two kids um, and a mortgage? Maybe not. Um, but, you know, so that's why we need to take people on these journeys when they're, you know, at an age where they can make big leaps and take big chances and experiment. Um, but I became a rabbi, not because I think we need rabbis per se. Um, I became a rabbi because I was deeply yearning to learn Torah and to root down the impulses that I was having and the culture emergence experience that I was facilitating and the kind of teaching that I want to offer around the renewal of tradition in this earth-based direction. And becoming something as a rabbi was not my goal, but to be able to root down my teaching and my facilitation within the tradition felt very important. And I couldn't figure out a way to do it other than this. So as we close out, I'm curious to get your take on a question that Dan and I have been wrestling with around halakha. So around, you know, this in the traditional sense, you know, Jewish law, but we've been also talking with guests who define halakha differently. And, and I, f I have a, a sense that you probably define it differently, but we'll see. Um, and I wanted to ask the following. So we have been wrestling with on the issue of paradigm shift, whether and how and in what sense halakha is going to be or should be part of the Jewish future and also ways in which maybe the ways Halakhas manifested in the past are not best situated for the future. And I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Like, if you were to craft or 
diagnose a halakha that would meet the needs of Jews today, would would comment on the issues that they care about, that we care about, would would allow us to wrestle on a day-to-day basis with the issues that we need to be and with the issues that we want to be. What would you sort of draw up for us? You know, I think that we need to look at not just navel-gazing within Judaism, but how we relate to our communities around us. Race, you know, gender and inclusivity, these things should be part of our halakha now. Because these are the issues of our time. If you look at the millennials and what they're concerned with, they are concerned with white privilege. They're concerned with, you know, how we understand gender norms and the spectrum and how we include people. Well, these things should become the halakha. And halakha should be shifting and changing with the shifting and changing mores of the time. It, it's, it moves too slowly. The halakhic practice, uh, the halakhic process that we have in Judaism today with the tshuva here or there and new codes being developed, it moves too slowly. Reb Zalman, you know, wrote his book, Integral Halakha, which I'm sure came up in your conversation. And it is something that's important that we are able to get down to the deep values and the deep intentions that feel true and alive in the community at the time, and then move the, the halakha or the way we walk together, which, you know, hal- the halakh is to walk, you know, so the halakha is the, is the walk. So it's not a walk that was codified for us, you know, some 500 years ago or, or later, you know. But the walk needs to be what the community agrees to walk, you know, with the roots of the tradition. Like, that's what halakha should be. So we should have a way in which halakha includes a process for co-creating halakha by the people all the time. And one of, those, one of the halakhic codes should also say, maybe this is the beginning, is that those who set the halakha are not the ones who are in power, but, you know, but power is held you know, by the collective with the elders supervising the collective so that we, the collective doesn't get too far out of line. You know, there needs to be limitations again, but it should be adaptive. It should be in motion and it should be deeply rooted, but it needs to stay alive and relevant. Otherwise the next generation will simply turn their back on it. So how do we create a way to walk together that's alive and breathing? That should be top of the list. Sally Golden, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. It's been real great to be with, uh, with you both. Appreciate the work you're doing. And thanks, of course, also to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this conversation in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can email us. Email us for sure. Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation you're able to allot and send in our direction. And you can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate with either a one-time gift or a monthly recurring donation. So thanks so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this one. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.